following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Um, we've had a great week. We have some real honored guests here this morning uh, from Cusco, Peru. You know, we've talked about Peru. We have sent people to Peru. Our head, our head missionary to Peru, Amy Hausholt, is a member here at our church, and, and um, we've, we've prayed for the work that's going on in Peru. And, and just so you know, they, they have no idea what I'm saying right now. Uh, but uh, we are so honored to have them and blessed by their presence. And um, we've had a good week. They've visited at different homes, talking about the work going on uh, with their, their group, Atec, uh, their uh, ministry there. And um, I had a, a, it was really nice to be able to sit with them and, and hear about the work going on. And from the moment I, I, I met Freddie, uh, saw him from across the room and uh, met him, and I felt, this guy's my brother. Uh, long lost brother, and it was really neat. There's one more opportunity to get to know, just uh, hear a little bit about this week while they're here. Uh, that's at noon at um, Deb Tilly's home. You guys can grab a pack, uh, you can grab a sack lunch. I think there's going to be food there as well, like a potluck. Uh, so if you want to go, I suggest that uh, you would if you have the time. Uh, Amy Household, could you just raise your hand? Uh, check with her on directions and, and details on, on, on that. So um, uh, this, is, this is for them, okay. Gracias por venir aquí. Sí. Gracias a vosotros y paz de Dios nuestro Padre y del Señor Jesucristo. Nos, I'm not done. Nos usted, <laughs> nos usted y su familia a la iglesia Santa Cruz, bienvenida. Que Dios los bendiga a medida que trabajan en el evangelio. Compartimos con ustedes nuestra oración y nuestra amistad. So, uh, le, uh, levántate, por favor. Thank you so much. Not bad from a boy from Kentucky, huh? All right. Uh, they're wonderful. Please say hello to them. Uh, before you guys leave. And um, we're continuing in our series, our encouragement series. I hope you all have been encouraged by our time in this, in this book of Philippians. And today we finish up chapter one. And so it's taken us eight weeks to get through chapter one. Uh, but take heart, we'll do the next three chapters in about 11 weeks or so. So we will, uh, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit, but we still have a lot of work to do. And uh, when we think about needing encouragement. Of course, we often think about needing encouragement in the times of struggle and temptation and suffering. But what our passage shows us this morning is that we don't only need encouragement to get us through a struggle, but also we need encouragement to uh, prepare us for future struggle, to stand firm while in times of peace, in times of, of rest, to prepare us for times of struggle. We need the gospel of Jesus, not only in the midst of our, of our need, but the gospel is also for our ongoing walk with Christ. And we always run to God with, in prayer in the moment of crisis. And there's something about a, a habit of a mature Christian who does not only flee to Christ in crisis, but learns how to walk with him in our life, no matter what the circumstance. This church here that Paul, our Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to this church, uh, they are relatively healthy. They're a great church. Uh, they're healthy, maybe the most spiritually and relationally healthy church that he has uh, been a part of planting and that he's written to. Um, and yet he 
he knows that it doesn't take long even for a good church, a faithful church, to skip into or to slip into times of indifference or temptation or eventually into moral failure when they encounter struggles of all kinds. And so he's writing to them to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. And he's inviting them to take a closer look into their heart and really ask the question, how are you doing? How are you walking with the Lord? Are you standing firm? And are you encouraged to walk closely with him every day? And that's, that's my encouragement to you, that we would look at our hearts and, and as we read this passage and walk through it. So let's go to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Let's follow along here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Great passage. Finish up chapter 1. Um, I took a shop class in, in high school, and I loved it. It was one of my favorite classes. I really enjoyed engineering, architecture, construction. Uh, I loved working with my hands and building things, and so naturally I went to seminary and became a pastor. And <clears throat> one of the assignments was to design a prototype for a bridge. And the total length of this, it was small, it was about maybe 18, 12 to 18 inches, something like that. The only material that we were allowed to use were these small, thin pine uh, pieces of wood, like, like uh, in and out fries. That's what they looked like. Uh, and we could use wood glue. And those were the only supplies that we had. And once the deadline came for completion, each student had their bridge, and they put it on this mechanism that tested, it, it put weight on the bridge, and it tested how much weight this bridge could, could handle before it broke and cracked and fell apart. Um, when your bridge cracks, you look at the weight that was measured on this machine, and that was your score. And the rules were simple. You can't double up on wood, and you can't use glue on any other place other than uh, the joints of this bridge. And so basically, you couldn't just make a brick <laughs> and put all this wood together and glue it together and, and say that was your bridge. Um, it was nerve-wracking when your bridge was put, not put on, that, on that weight on the scale and it begins to bend under the weight and you feel that first crack and it's heartbreaking. It's like your, your, your little baby on there or something. You put all this work into it. And not only that, as it's bending, you, you're kind of sweating and you're anticipating, is it gonna hold? Is it gonna hold? When is it gonna crack? And as it's being tested, I remember all of my insecurities about the construction started to come out. As the weight is crushing this bridge, I'm thinking, I should have extended that beam. I, I should have, uh, I knew that joint was going to be weak. I, I was hurried in that corner over there on that bridge, and all of my insecurities started to come out about the things that I wish I had done. Well, verse 27 through 30 here, as we finish chapter 1, it's in, in the Greek, it's one full sentence. It's one interrupted sentence. And its main purpose is for us to have a careful watch to the conduct of our lives for the sake of the gospel. It's to give a careful watch to our lives because when our life is tested, when there is pressure put on, 
We desire that it would withstand that for the glory and honor of Jesus. And so Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul encourages others to live in a worthy way. And he uses this phrase often in his letters. He's using the word worthy, be worthy, live your life worthy. And when he uses it, he means that we should live in such a way that would demonstrate what we believe in is of supreme value. So whatever the manner of our life, we'd be able to look at the person's life and be able to determine what's most important to that person. So live in such a way that what is most important to you would be evident to others around you. So when we live in a worthy way according to the gospel of Christ, he means that a Christian and all that he or she acts and feels and thinks and behaves should live in such a way where Jesus is most glorified and most honored. This magnifies his reputation and his glory and honor. Consider this similar kind of language as we're talking about uh, maybe uh, encouraging a child before they go out into a sporting event or something like that. And you sit down, you get on one knee with your child, and you say, now go out there and make me proud. Okay, whether, whether or not you say this or not, what you're really saying is go out there and remember that my opinion means everything. More than anyone else's, so don't let me down. And then you start putting money in a savings account for all the therapy that you're going to need later. Now, if a child, consider this, if the child is unsure about how the parent feels about them, they will feel very insecure and maybe even afraid to disappoint as they go out and perform and go out and compete. So he goes out and he tries his hardest, attempting to earn your favor and earn your love with a sincere hope to not let you down. And all that's going on in his mind is, I, I got to do the right thing. I hope I don't let them down. I don't want to make them not proud. So this child's joy and enthusiasm is going to be directly tied to his performance. Now, imagine the same situation, but the communication's a little different. Imagine the parent kneels down and says, my son, I have already made up my mind about you. I have already made up in my heart and mind about how I feel about you. I love you, and there is nothing that you can do in this performance, in this competition, that you can do, whether fail or succeed, that will change my affection for you. Now go out there and make me proud. Which child do you think is going out there with real joy and encouragement? The second one, right? And yet there's this still the same invitation, the same desire to go out and, and consider how you're going to live. But the reason is different. You're saying in the second one, go out there and work out in your life who you already are. You are secure in my love. You are secure in this family. Win or fail, it doesn't matter. So enjoy. And this is what Paul is encouraging us to do. And so that you're not confused by this encouragement in this passage, um, let's pay attention to where this encouragement finds itself in the midst of this whole chapter. Because here we have, we're closing up this chapter. He, and if you haven't been with us for the last eight weeks, let me show you where we've been. He has just spent much of his writing affirming the gospel in their life. 
affirming the change that has happened in their life, the love of God coming into their life, changing them, making them new, the grace of God transforming their identity. Uh, Philippians 1, uh, 3 through 6, he says this. He starts off the chapter, I thank God for my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is not saying, God has yet to make up his mind about you. And so consider how you live, and maybe that'll tip the scale to make God proud. And go out there and live in a worthy manner. But he's saying, but because, because the grace of God has come to you already, you have already been saved by an unconditional love in spite of your failure, failures, He's already received you as evidence by your faith in him. He, and now go out and work out this calling. Work out this identity. Work out this identity as, as, a, as a child of God. He's saying work out in your life what God has already worked in your life. Christ alone is worth living for. This is what this means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Christ alone is worth an entire life's affection and devotion. Not so that we might receive the love of God, but because of his grace, we already have to the full extent that he is capable of giving it. This is the place in the chapter where we find this command to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Because this grace has come to you unconditionally, work hard at it. Work out what God has already worked in. For God to be worthy, for God to be glorious, means that we believe there is no opinion on earth that matters more than God's opinion. And we seek it out, and we're excited about living in that way. Now, it's very easy to confess this. It's easier to confess this than to live it out, isn't it? There is no opinion that matters more than God's. Okay, now you've got to go live it out in your life. Well, that is very different. You live out this truth means that whatever we encounter, our actions and our motivations, we are always asking the question, what brings honor to Christ in this situation so that I can do it, so that I can enjoy it, so that I can delight in what he's asked of me? And for Paul, as he's writing through this, we, we, we even got to last week where it said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's very obvious that Paul is saying, the honor of Christ is more important than anything in my life even my life itself, there, uh, even my own well-being or your well-being or the well-being of anybody else, the honor of Jesus is more important. The honor of Christ is far more important than my, my well-being and how happy I am in my life. And then he goes on to explain how this can be done, how we can act in a worthy manner, worthy of the gospel, as people who are partakers of the gospel of grace. And specifically, he, he lists three things in, his, in this passage that he hopes to see, because he says, I hope that when I come to you, I'll see these things. So these things are, are what we're going to talk about this morning. One, that they're standing firm in their convictions. Two, that they're striving together in the unity of the faith with one another. And three, that they are not intimidated by the threats of others. Okay, so let's walk through these great three things this morning. The first is this, standing firm. So this is talking about a moral conviction. It's a moral conviction versus an indifference. So he's saying stand firm in these principles. Don't compromise regardless of the cost. 
the way a soldier might, might hold his position, the way a soldier might, uh, until further instruction, holding his angle, holding his position, holding his ground. Paul says, when I get a report, I want to have this joy to see that you, have, that you are unwavering in the gospel, that it hasn't been watered down, that it hasn't been minimized, but it is just as potent and vibrant as the first day that you received it. So standing firm has two kind of messages or connotations in this. One's a positive thing. Let's look at it, and the other's a negative. Let's look at the positive first. Positive, Paul often encourages his readers to stand firm. And what he means, uh, he, what he was meant to preach to them was to regularly benefit from the gospel by standing firm in it. Uh, he says this in Galatians 5.1. He tells them, stand firm in the freedom of grace. He uses the analogy of a, an athlete who's training. An athlete would train his body and his mind and uh, would study up on nutrition and hydration and incorporate these things into his or her practice in their life. They would prepare themselves well for the challenge. And so Paul is saying to stand firm by, by diligently pursuing a healthy maturity in the gospel. You know, a long-distance runner would never just go out and run without training. This is why many do not run. You ever, when you ever watch the Olympics and you say, I'd like to do that. I don't want to try it. I don't want to work out. I don't want to have to train, but I'd love to get a medal. I'd love, to, I'd love to win. I just don't like the idea of discipline that is required to compete like they compete, to be the best. When it comes to living worthy of the gospel, we cannot be indifferent to what the Bible says about any area of life. We cannot be indifferent about any area of life. We, can't, we do not have the freedom to say, well, I don't really know what God thinks about that, but I'm just going to go with with my gut, or what, what I've learned, or how I grew up, or what my friends are doing. To stand firm in the gospel, we must be diligent to have an unwavering conviction of who God is and who he desires us to be. Some ways we can do this is, but we can't do this without a humble and intentional, thoughtful study of God's word. Opening ourselves up to the scriptures and asking questions like, what does this say about God, and what does this say about me? And how do I live my life in light of this? I encourage you to, to find some podcasts that you like that continue to teach you in, in the gospel of grace. Read books that are saturated with gospel language. Listen to music that, that teaches you about the gospel of Christ. Surround yourself with, with things. Just immerse yourself in, in all different ways to dwell on this and be trained by this. Train your body as if you're running a race. Find ways to orient your thinking around the gospel so that we can often be reminded of it. To, to live our life and make decisions based on our assumptions about who God is without training ourselves in the gospel is like a runner going out and just running without training. It's dangerous. It hurts us, it's painful, and it's foolish. And then there's a negative side to this, is, and that is if we stand firm in the gospel towards Christ and pursuing him, then we also are standing against evil. Here I'm reminded of a passage that's too often only mentioned in Sunday school class for kids, and that's the armor of God. I love this in Ephesians chapter 6. We are told, be strong in the Lord 
and put on the full armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and to stand firm. So we put on the armor of God to protect us, to prepare us. We wake up in the morning and we, and we prepare our hearts and minds to deal diligently with the gospel, to learn about who God is and to apply it in a way that is faithful. And so Paul's joy is that I want to hear these reports that you did not just coast off of what you learned a long time ago, but you are continuing to develop yourself. I often use the analogy that, I've, that I have used for myself, and that is waking up Monday morning and eating a 10,000-calorie meal and then expecting that to just get you through to the rest of the week. And often we, we act like that spiritually sometimes. We think, well, I, I, there was a season in my life where I learned a lot about God and I felt really encouraged, and that's just going to kind of catapult me into maturity and into adulthood, and, and, and I'll just I'll keep looking back on that. And then we're surprised when we often feel weak and fatigued in our hearts. We need to continually train ourselves, and that's what Paul hopes to see. Second, to live worthy of the gospel after standing firm, he says, to strive together. So this is interdependence versus independence. Some of the worst that a church might encounter likely won't be, you know, murder, theft, lying, or financial catastrophe. The worst that a church, like a church like ours, might encounter will be a lack of commitment to stand together for the goal of seeing Jesus honored in our relationships with each other. And we often misunderstand that. We often overlook that and see these things are like struggle. That is our peripheral struggles. But these are things that could break apart a church and dishonor Jesus. Suffering, struggles, and suffering are generated when we are hurt by someone. And instead of graciously initiating reconciliation with that person, we ignore or we harbor feelings, or we gossip, or we hate, or we distrust, or we find new friends, or we go to a different community, or we pick sides, or we criticize, and all these things are happening behind the scenes. But if we were to pause and say, God, here's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling betrayed. I'm feeling mistreated. What do you desire that I should do? What brings honor to you in this situation, and how can I do it? That's what it means to walk worthily of the gospel of Christ. The only situation, or I'm sorry, the only solution to this kind of suffering is a special effort to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted, to forgive one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. Therefore, therefore bringing glory to God and living life worthy of the gospel. If we ever think to ourselves, well, why do I have to be the one that's doing all of that work in this relationship, right? We've said that before. The answer is because that is the attitude that Christ had for us. And he did all the work for us. Paul tells us, have this mind in, in you that is in Christ. Act in this way, and this brings glory and honor to Jesus. Act like Christ acts towards us. You know, there's this celebrated phenomenon that we see often, and it's, it's really encouraging, but it happens in the midst of, of national struggle, national tragedy, that we should all be very proud of, and people coming together. Right? We saw it at 9-11, at the attacks in New York and elsewhere, where the country came together. 
We saw it at the Boston Marathon bombing. We saw it at the Sandy Hook shooting. We saw it at the Gabby Gifford shooting years ago. We see this often when there's a, a tragedy in a city. The city comes together and we celebrate our interdependence rather than our independence. And here's what Paul is highlighting. He's saying it is during the struggle that people naturally flock to depend on one another and put aside competition and just seek to love one another and honor each other. And Paul says, as God's people, have this mind in you always. In the midst of tragedy or in the midst of, of celebration. Have this mind in you always. The God's people should be identified by this attitude and this behavior. Don't wait for struggle to say, I'm going to start caring about how you feel and think. Because when the struggle happens, we're often not ready. Studying this passage, it brings a grin to my face when I come to this phrase, striving together, that the Bible uses. Because I dig into this deeper meaning of what it means. And to strive together in the, in, uh, is where that word where we get uh, our English word is athletics. It, the Greek word athletico. Maybe that's Spanish. I don't know. Um, this, the Greek is, means athletics. That's where we get our English word athletics. To literally mean, he says, literally be on the same team. But not only be on the same team, but while you are on that team, don't be a ball hog. Strive together for the goal of honoring Christ. The goal of a team is to advance the kingdom of God. The goal of the church is to advance the kingdom of God, to promote the gospel in our lives, in our community, to honor Jesus. This relates to our sharing of life, but also to, our, to lovingly holding one another accountable to resist sin and temptation. So this isn't just a matter of encouraging one another, supporting them, striving to encourage them, but it also means that we, are, we realize that we are interdependent, that we need one another, and that when we are, are in a lifestyle or habit of sin, it's good to enter into that and to call that out lovingly and graciously. Do you think for a minute that during the middle of a game or a practice, uh, Sean Miller cares about hurting people's feelings when they're doing something wrong. This is why he doesn't wear a tie anymore often, so he can yell louder. They're, they're, they are a team, and they love one another, and they, don't, they, they win only when they strive together as a team. And when someone is hurting, when someone is, is, is not diligent to walk in a way worthy of the gospel, that person needs to be lovingly approached and corrected and called out not in order for that person to get their life in order to be loved, but because that person is loved by the grace of God. Unity is not the goal. Loving one another for the sake of unity alone is a futile task. Just being unified is not the goal. But sacrificing for the sake of unity, for the sake of gospel growth and the honor of Jesus, that is the goal. Honoring Christ. This is where he lays down the motivation and the end of our unity. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this manifests itself today in a sharing of life. The early church was famously known for sharing their life. The Bible says that they, in all things, had everything in common. In all things, they had in common. This doesn't mean that they agreed on everything, but but that they prioritized the sharing of life as it related to money and possessions and time and worship and fellowship and prayer. 
And so for many of us, the pain of suffering will be so great simply because we have failed to allow margin in our life for authentic relationships. We overlook this and we look at all the busyness of our life and then we feel continually struggling and tempted and and falling into sin and having a hard time getting connected simply because we don't allow margin in our life for sacrificing in relationship. And the last way that Paul instructs us to walk worthy of the gospel is this, to resist intimidation. So he highlights a fear of God versus a fear of man. This is best explained by comparing the fear of God and the fear of man. Why do we do things? Are we holding firm? Are we standing firm? Are we giving up that conviction because we're afraid of God or afraid of man? Are we more willing to please others or we don't want to offend, we don't want to uh, lose a friendship, showing that we are more afraid of man than fearing God, an appropriate fear of God, where we show him reverence and honor and obedience. So Paul tells us that in an effort to walk in a worthy way that brings honor to Jesus, we should not be intimidated by those who desire to kill and torture because of our faith. Uh, This is difficult because most of us don't find ourselves in a time in our life uh, right here in Tucson uh, where we are in danger of losing our life because of our faith, but many across the world are. And just because we might not be in danger of losing our life or being tortured, this is still very applicable. There are plenty of ways that fear and courage uh, apply in this context. Let me give you an example. What makes you, just today in your life, What makes you timid about believing the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is communicated in the Bible? If you believed and trusted and obeyed the word of God as it related to your convictions, what makes you afraid? What makes you angry? I mean, what makes you weary? What makes you wonder, I don't know if I should do that? What makes you hesitant? to stand firm as a follower of Christ today in your city and in your life, in your workplace, as it relates to sex, marriage, money, power, life, the value of life. If we were to go to God's word and say, God, what do you value so that I may value those things? And in embracing those things, what are we afraid of? What might people think of us? Who will ridicule you? Family members, neighbors, co-workers, spouse? Who will humiliate you? Who will see you as dumb and ignorant and irrelevant and old-fashioned? We should not play down the need to live our lives in a way worthy of the gospel for the sake of pleasing others in the church, or anywhere else, who are opposed to God's teaching. We should stand firm in that. So it it appears that in in a unique way, the global church has a great need for discernment and commitment to the gospel of Christ. We're tempted because of opposition, because of intimidation, to be more oriented about around 
around what others think and the fear of man and being kind to others and the need for approval and our own comfort rather than the gospel. So God's word is, is giving us permission and instruction to stand firm in a moral conviction no matter what in the face of cultural intimidation. But here's something really good that we need to hear. Nowhere in this letter does Paul encourage us to retaliate intimidation with other intimidation, with other hatred, with other, uh, with other um, animosity. Rather, he tells us, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened by that intimidation. And the reason for why we should not be frightened might surprise you. He says, the insults we receive, the oppression, the persecution, and even the humiliation are gifts from God. This word, when he says, do not be intimidated, do not be frightened, he's, he's, he's talking about the way a horse acts when it's startled. So he's saying, don't be startled because when you startle a horse, it kicks that person in the mouth. And so if you are intimidated by cultural pressures or whatever, don't go and kick the culture in the mouth because you feel threatened. But rather, stand firm. Pursue one another. And do not be frightened. Because these are a gift from God. The suffering we experience due to a standing firm in the gospel is an extension of the grace of God. Is this just bizarre to you? It's bizarre to me. Paul says this is granted to us. But he also says another thing. He says salvation is granted to us. Salvation is always the initiation of God. He says it is from him. Our salvation, our ability to respond in faith to God is an extension of his grace. His initiative with us is truly and purely unconditional, not based on any good of our own or based on any foreseen good that he looks into our life. Paul says this is from God. Our salvation above all things is gracious. It is a gift and therefore cannot be earned. But surprisingly, Paul says, there's another extension of God's grace that we would also suffer on behalf of Christ. They should not be surprised by their suffering. They should not be overwhelmed by their suffering. They should consider their suffering as evidence that God looks upon them with favor. For these readers or for us, this is a surprising read. He is saying, since everything is from God, our salvation, our faith, our suffering, our struggles, all things are meant to put Christ at the center. So whether we live or die, Christ is glorified. These 21 Egyptians that were killed last Sunday, they're called the, the people of the cross. And they died the same way that Christ died. They died standing firm, unafraid. We look at that and we say, this is horrible. But here we are in Tucson, Arizona, thousands of miles away, and I hope that we are strengthened by their testimony, by their witness, encouraged by their standing firm in the gospel, that in all things, Christ is center. 
And this is what Paul wants his readers to realize. And don't you see that it's our tendency, whether in salvation or in suffering, to make us the center? When we're saved, either initially or over time as we grow, we have a tendency to look at ourselves and say, look at how I contributed. Look at the choices that I made and look at the good that I have done. Look at how God has been kind to me because of what I have done. And even in our suffering, we, we look at ourselves and say, look at how I'm hurting. Where is God? Why has he forgotten me? Why doesn't he care? And so in either our salvation or either our suffering, the key to living a life worthy of the gospel and glorifying Jesus is to make a radical shift towards Christ in all things. Our salvation is from God, and therefore he alone deserves all of our honor and glory. Our suffering is also from God, and therefore we ought to suffer in a Christ-centered way. And when we do this, God's favor is affirmed, and those who oppress us affirm their own destruction. Paul's saying this is a sign. It's a sign for God's love for you, but it's also a sign that for all who oppress you, as you stand firm in the gospel, are affirming their own punishment. So you don't have to be afraid. Fearless faith results from holding onto Christ as our greatest treasure. God, you are my greatest treasure. You are all that matters. And when you are all that matters, then my life is oriented around you and what you think. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel results from holding onto Christ as he is everything. So what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? of Christ. In summary, here's what Paul has said. It looks like walking with love, doing life with those who are like you and life with those who are unlike you. It means striving for unity with others. It looks like striving together to make Christ known in your efforts, sacrificing your own desire for the advancement of your reputation for the advancement of your desires and comfort, but rather saying what brings Jesus honor so that we can do that together. It looks like standing with courage against all oppressors, natural and supernatural, cultural or political. And those who belong to Jesus through faith in the gospel should demonstrate the power of their changed lives. What we learn from this is Paul is saying those who have received the grace of God should demonstrate this in their lives as it's lived out. Paul's encouraging those in the church to remember, the gospel has saved you. The gospel has brought you together and made you a family. The gospel has secured for you, second by second in your life, the perfecting work of God in you. He is going to finish all that he's begun so that everything else in your life you can hold loosely because this most important thing is held tightly by Christ. So I want you to fearlessly face this question. And he, asks, he tells us to fearlessly face this call that we have. So fearlessly face this question. How are you doing in regards to living in a manner worthy of the gospel? By which and for which you have been called by the grace of God. This is a question for you and your heart. This is for you to look in and say, honestly, 
I am bringing shame to Christ in this, in this area of my life. But then we can say, but your love for me is not based on that. Your love for me is based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And he is my hope. And he has covered my sin with his blood. And I trust in him and have received him. Thank you. Now empower me and encourage me to live a life worthy of who I am. I am yours and in your family and I belong to you and you belong to me and that cannot be taken away. And that gives us that encouragement to say I'm going to confess of that sin and repent of that sin and turn from it and close that door and I'm going to turn to Christ because that is where I find my hope and my salvation my comfort, and my encouragement. Remember, we are talking about living a life worthy of the gospel and what it means to be a maturing Christian. We're not talking about what it means to earn salvation. We're not talking about what it means to become a Christian because that work has been accomplished for us in Christ. We're talking about growing. And so if you desire to grow as a Christian, it is so important and so good to ask that question, how are we doing? How are you doing? What do we need to confess and how can we turn and trust to Christ? And press on towards that goal. Stand firm and press on towards that goal of knowing Jesus because he loves you so much. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.